listening to the best goddamn podcast available with your host, Rob Childs. Temple and yeah, then we're just good to go. I don't like doing any like, you know, long intros or anything like yep. that. I like this to just be an actual conversation, you know, between you and I. And uh, okay. we had we had started off speaking last week and kind of went through a little bit about your story in it intrigued me a lot because you just from like the very small, you know, like little story that I got, it seems like we're on very similar. You're, you've kind of already gone down the path that I'm trying to go down from where I've been. So I was hoping today we could kind of get into it and elaborate a little bit more and uh, hopefully help some other people believe that they too can do big things coming from small places. So uh, Stacy, thanks for coming on. Thank you. uh, yeah, let's just let's just kind of dive right in and uh, and start with your story and sure. kind of where, you, where you grew up at and everything. So, you know, I gave some thought to this before before today, and you know the hamster wheel that you yeah. see the little rodent and he's running and running and running and running and he never stops. So when I think about the hamster on the wheel, to me, she's resilient. That's a resilient little animal that just doesn't stop pushing through. And for me, my wheel, my journey of hyper resiliency really started when I was about 15 years old, when I left home. I left a really, really good home. And I had three things. I had my garbage bag full of clothes. I had my dad's last words, which were, you walk out that door, you're going to be nothing. You're going to be less than nothing. And the promise that I made to him, which was really, I'm going to show you, I'm going to be a lawyer. And I turned away and I left. And I realized in that very short walk to the place that I had arranged to stay, that if I was going to get through this, if I was going to now survive, I needed to build this suit of armor that protected me from everything that I up having to experience so I was strong super strong on the outside that sort of you can't hurt me you can't knock me down attitude and in the meantime there'll be this terrified little girl with no clue in the world what she's just done or how it's going to turn out and I spent five years living different places different people sometimes no place to live I worked hard I went to school because I made a promise and there was no way, no way I was going to break that promise that I made to my dad and to myself. And when I think about it in hindsight, you know, that was just me being me, Um, but it meant something. And so that kept me focused, kept me going. I finished high school, didn't get arrested, figured that was a win. And, um, you know, I survived, right? I survived everything that comes along with being a 15-year-old girl who's living on a road. Like, it's just, yeah. it wasn't yeah. pretty. And then I got home. About five years later, I reconciled with my family. And I had spent five years wearing this heavy suit of armor, and I had been the only during those five years, right? I was the only person who didn't have a family. I was the only person who didn't have a support system. I had to learn to hide in plain sight, live small, 
read a room. I had to learn how to do what I had to do to survive. So when I got home, I didn't have to be this survivor, right? I, I thought, I'm home. This is good. Yeah. But my family had grown up, and my family had moved on um, without me. So I still had to stay that hyper-resilient young woman now, carrying around this suit of armor, because I had gone from someone who had to survive to someone who now had something to prove because what I didn't want was my family to see me as a victim. Yeah. That's a a horrible place to feel like you're being viewed as for sure. I guess my first question that I feel like you kind of glossed over is I, I left my home when I was 16. um, And I've, I've known quite a few people that are similar situations, but traditionally it's not, leaving a good home it's leaving a bad home so at the age of 15 what kind of prompted you to decide to make the decision that you're leaving you know a a good environment or was the environment not good it just looked good the environment was great the environment was great like i came from a well-off upper middle class family mom a dad two sisters no issues But things happened that made me think that I didn't belong there anymore. And it's, you know, as stupid as this sounds, um, when I was about 14-ish, I found out that my dad was actually my stepfather. And I had, I remember this overwhelming thought. It's like, this isn't my family? Wait a minute. I thought these were my sisters. I thought this was my mom and dad. And now... I'm not even part of this family anymore. Then I met a guy who my parents knew right off the bat was an idiot. I didn't see it. <laughs> yeah, you I, didn't, were I didn't want to yeah. see it. Yep. And I think, um, you know, he obviously knew what had happened the year before. And he picked up on that. And he and his family became very manipulative. And it turned into this, you're right, Stacey. Your family doesn't love you. Your family doesn't want you. You're not part of them. You should come and be part of us. And I started skipping school. My parents found out. They got really mad. And it turned into this power struggle between my family, my parents, and this guy over me. Mm-hmm. And the anger and the tension. And it just became such a bad environment where we were constantly fighting at home and I'm sneaking around and I'm skipping school and I'm lying and I'm doing everything that I think is the right thing to do because somebody else is whispering in my other ear all along. I've got two sisters who are seeing this whole thing happening. And I think it, it just got to the point where I didn't know where I belonged. And I thought the only thing I could do to fix it was to leave. And I did. Yeah, I I remember that feeling very, very intensely of just, you know, the final straw. And and you said something about, uh, you know, at 14, finding out that your father wasn't your father. I uh, I didn't experience that. I, I just never knew who he was until I was 16, met him once or twice. And that, and that was kind of it. But I remember 
hearing stories that weren't true and that betrayal at such a young age. Yeah. And that's exactly what it is. However you want to word it, look at it. It's a betrayal. And from such a young age to find out that the reality that you've used as a comfort zone has been impenetrated. It's not real. It's been all lies and everybody, but you knew that will throw the anybody you know in front of a bus at, at yeah. you know, so to say it's not something that to be taken lightly at all because as a kid your family is all that you have you know and if That's you right. don't have that you search for it and yep. you know everybody that i've known searches for some level of community and unfortunately it's very commonplace for younger girls to to fall into like these traps of like you know generally a little bit older guys that can put off this persona of they have their shit together yeah. everybody else is dumb listen to them and it genuinely leads you down the path to where if you're lucky you get in a 12-step program later on in life yeah uh, just from like my experience so you made this promise at a very young age that you were going to become an attorney you're homeless for five yeah. years, still graduated high school. So I'm proud mm-hmm. of you for that. Because Thank you. That, that, I never graduated high school. I did the uh, the GED. It's like the yeah. equivalent. And um, so very proud of you for doing that. That's amazing. How do you take this experience? Because those five years, I'm assuming, impacted you more than if you would have stayed at home could yeah. you talk a little bit about that and how just that the level of reliving that life had some experience on you so you know once i got home and i decided that i can't like there's just this overwhelming everybody was happy right but the underlying tone was there was a lot of sympathy poor stacy you know she's had such a tough life and I didn't like that because I hadn't for five years. I was never poor Stacy, at least not in my mind. Mm-hmm. Stacy, that's tough as nails. That old blow up clown, you know, that you would hit and it would bounce back and it would pop <laughs> yeah, back yeah, up. Yeah. That yeah. was me. Like that was me for five years. You could do what you want. You can knock me down. But damn right I was getting back up. So at that time, when I moved back home, I came across Tony Robbins for the first time. And I started listening to him and I thought, you know what? I don't have to tell myself the story that I'm a victim. My story that I'm going to tell myself is I'm a survivor. And I started looking back and going over certain things that had happened to me. And instead of, you know, looking at it from the negative perspective, I found the story that made me stronger. Mm-hmm. So I tried, I did my very best to turn it around and tell myself, I'm okay. I'm going to be fine. I'm just going to keep moving, you know, blinders on like the horse race and keep going and I'm going to yeah. be okay. But the problem with that, and I talked about this earlier, is this, you know, it's this armor. And when you go through life being so hyper resilient, everything gets buried inside. Mm-hmm. Everything Every feeling, every emotion, every, all of that. I couldn't trust myself and I couldn't trust anybody around me because everything had to be kept inside because I had to keep the persona up. 
Sure. And it's yeah. exhausting. Yeah. It's really exhausting. <laughs> yeah. There's this next question may be exhausting as well because it's a little bit deeper. It's something that I've I've witnessed in going down this LSAT journey and uh, becoming very close with my fiance's family. Um, they don't know most of my history. They, they know some bullet points and yeah. later on we're going to have a long conversation. Um, but it's just not really needed right now. Um, but they mm. come from a very well off middle-class family. And when I come around, it's, they're very accepting. It's almost, it's like my family. It's amazing. Um, but there's this level of programming that I've noticed to where when you come from certain places, you're expected to act certain ways. Yeah. And if you do not fit that mold, you're the black sheep of the family. And, and you're not looked at as strong. You know, you're not looked at as the person that can get knocked down and get back up. You're looked at as stupid because you keep trying and keep failing, at least from my perspective. And so I guess my question is, I'm, a, I'm just, and this is just an assumption that that programming kind of existed within, in your very young childhood, going from that to, let's just call it like the streets or whatever, you know what it is to where you no longer have that parental guidance around you and you're, you're running your own life and then life smacks you in the face. Were you able to to take that as like a positivity or was that a huge anxiety and fear of like, oh shit, this is real? Uh, huge anxiety and fear. Huge. Yeah. Until recently. Um, so it, I find it interesting that you, you talk about it from the sense of a mold and, um, my question, my first thought that came to mind was, whose narrative is that? Is that yours? Or is I'm, that everybody else's? I, or what you think everybody else thinks? Yeah. For, for me, I'm still trying to figure it out. Um, I know my upbringing was extremely violent. Um, just not something that I, I really get into too much. Mm -hmm. it, it was not good. And so being around friends and everything, I would be eight, nine years old and it would be nothing for me to tell an adult to fuck off. You know, yeah. like you are not like, fuck you. Who are you? Yeah. And everybody just look at me like, whoa. And like it instantly drew, drew this line of like, you're not one of us. Like yeah. You cannot do those things. You cannot say the outlandish thoughts that you have in your head. And that's kind of where, where the, uh, the analogous mold I believe is coming from is like, is just the pushback on trying to actively be who I feel I am at that time and express it and not being allowed to. And I feel like that happens way more in middle-class and upper middle-class families than is ever talked about. Mm -hmm. uh, it, you got the helicopter moms and all that stuff. You're just not allowed to experience life. And so I guess that was kind of my assumption of, of what it was like in that environment. And then you getting thrown into, guess what? You don't have a, a bed upstairs with your own nope. shower anymore. You don't have breakfast in the morning. You get a couch. Yep. Do you have money? No, you don't get breakfast. No. And, and that's, and that's real. You know, yeah. So, yeah, I guess yeah. that would kind no, of I know. be my, uh, my the expansion on my mold theory. 
So it's, it's interesting because, you know, leaving home and being gone for five years was just the first of many challenges that I've had to, to fight through to get to where I actually am today. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everybody talks about COVID and everything else. And what I learned during COVID was that I actually had a chance to slow down, step off of that, you know, hamster wheel where I'm just keep going. Just I'm just pushing through. I'm still fighting. And I learned that as a child, as we're growing up, right, we build this foundation of values and beliefs. And those values and beliefs come from the people that are most important to us, right? So in your case, you're a young guy, you're eight, nine years old, you've been told by your parents, you've been told by adults, you can't talk that way. Our parents tell us, just be a good girl and sit over there and be quiet. We're, all of their values and beliefs are instilled on us at a very young age. Mm-hmm. And what happens is, is that as we grow up and we become adults, we have new experiences and our values and beliefs that we have about ourselves is really just an extension of the ones that have been instilled in us. And why that's important, it's because the values and beliefs that you have about yourself, not about, you know, like sort of the world in general, but just about you, mm-hmm. that's what forms the basis for the stories that you tell yourself. And that's what guides how you interact in the world. Does that I- make sense? Yes, no, a, a, a thousand percent. And, uh, and and correct me if I'm wrong. And and I want to get into your story a little bit deeper here pretty soon. But I can, in the way that you speak, uh, you've done work. You've put I the have. work in, um, and you know what that work means just by saying that. Mm-hmm. You you mentioned Tony Robbins. Yeah. Um, I, I've not read his books. I, I've seen like the documentary on Netflix. Um, personally, when I first heard about him, I was like, he's a, a fraud. It's just some guy telling other mm-hmm. people what to do to make money, you know, and that is essentially what he's doing. But what he's saying is not wrong. And it's there's not. and there's thousands of people that are like that. And there's this pushback on you know like this ignorance exactly like i had of well he's just trying to make money so whatever he says isn't valid and that's just not true because you can gain advice from anybody that's had experience um and so i wanted to give you this experience um kind of this thing that i learned and then kind of segue that into this next question there's a uh, a youtuber named casey neistat and he he grew up in Connecticut and, you know, nice family or whatever, but he was the black sheep and he was the one that was fucking up and everything. He wanted to move to New York, become a filmmaker, and he did it. But in doing that, he learned and created this uh, theory. It was called um, the Tarzan theory that if you don't know what you need to do next, life will give you a vine. It's just up to you of whether or not you grab it. And it's, you got to drop all expectation of where it's taking you and just do the next thing. And eventually Mm -hmm. the work will catch up and then things will start to fall in place. And the universe just kind of gives you this life. And so I wanted to take that and kind of compare that to, to where we ended off at your story is now you're 20, you've graduated high school, 
you're yep. back at home with your parents. Um, back home right with my parents. Right around now is when you should be, you know, in freshman, sophomore, in a university, especially when you're planning on law school. And for <laughs> some reason, I feel like that's not what happened. So no. what happened uh, at um, 20 years old? Yeah, you know, I found a job. I was a receptionist at a law firm. I figured, you know what? It's a good place to start. Mm-hmm. I got married. I had two kids, two boys, and life went on. I worked. I went to night school. I became a paralegal. And I started working for a different firm as a paralegal. And I just kept going. And about, I did that for probably about until 1997, maybe about 15 odd years. And um, by this time, I know a lot of lawyers. And I'm telling everybody, I'm going to be a lawyer one day. I left home, but I'm going to be a lawyer and blah, blah, blah. And everybody knew this was my plan. I had no idea how I was going to do it. I had Were you no scared idea. telling people this? You know, I think I was. Okay. <laughs> but it's, it comes from, I was, but you know what it comes from? It comes from that suit of armor, right? Yeah. It comes yeah. from that, I'm Stacy Stevens and I'm doing it. That's, yeah. It comes from that tough girl exterior that I have been crafting for now uh, 20 years. Because even the time when I was married, it was a struggle, to put it bluntly. Like my ex-husband worked off and on. I was always the main breadwinner. I got these, I have two wonderful, like I said, two wonderful kids. We had dogs, you know, but we were, you know, midnight move from rental to rental, um, you know, not having enough money to pay the bills. You know, the month comes and there's no money left. So it was hard, but mm-hmm. I just, it was just, nope, one day I'm going to be a lawyer. Don't ask me how, but I'm going to do it. And finally, and sorry, just to back up, once I started talking to people about that, you can only, the amount of ridicule, the amount of times that people said to me, really? Okay, Stacey, yep. what, what, is, what does your husband think of that? Dude, I'm going to kill you at that point. Um, who do you think you are that you could be a lawyer? Like the, It was unbelievable, the reaction that I was getting from everybody. And until I met one guy, one lawyer, and he finally just looked at me and said, why are you still talking about this? Why are you just not doing it? And I'm like, damn, you're right. So here's how Tony Robbins impacted me for the second time. I went back to him. And have you ever seen the movie Scrooge, A Christmas Carol? Uh, yeah, that... Not the not Bill the, Murray version. That's, is there like a Jim Carrey type looking no. character as like the cover? No. Yeah. Well, it was Bill Murray, but if you go all the way okay. back, you know, to the, the days of black and white, um, it's a really old, old movie. And it's about okay. this crotchety old guy who is bitter and he's angry at life. And he goes, his business partner dies, goes to sleep just before Christmas. And the ghost of Christmas past comes to visit him. The ghost of Christmas present and the ghost of Christmas future. And these three ghosts, give him the opportunity to see what his life, will, his life will be like if he yep. doesn't change. So, you know, here I am. I'm in my basement. Up everywhere. And I got the, the Walkman, right, with the cassette. Cause, you know, I'm a bit older. And Tony says, okay, sit in the chair, close your eyes, just relax. 
think about what you want to do in life and think about where you want to go. Imagine how you'll feel a year from now if you don't do it. Three years from now, five years from now. And as I did this, I got smaller and smaller. My breathing changed. I felt tucked. And then he said, okay, stand up, take it off. Now think about how you're going to feel if you follow through and you find Mm -hmm. a way. How are you going to feel in three years? How are you going to feel in five years? Yeah. And then I was like, man, I feel good. And it my state changed. And as much as people think that, you know, all this stuff is, you know, like you said, a bunch of crap, my physical state changed and my outlook changed. And I realized that for everything I've done in my life up until then, no matter how bad it was, I had no regrets. And I damn well wasn't going to let making the decision not to go to law school be the one regret I have in life. Because there's going to come a day where I'm going to be that little old lady, probably the crazy cat lady or the dog lady on my <laughs> rocking chair on the porch. And I don't want to be sitting there thinking, I could have. Yeah. What would happen if I just tried? What happens? If, so what? Yeah. So yeah. what? And so this whole Tarzan theory, it's very similar to what Tony Robbins talks about. And then um, another guy by the name of Tom Bilyeu, who studied Carol Dweck, who's a psychologist who talks about growth mindset. And even the, the Tarzan theory is the same thing. It, can be addressed, it doesn't matter if that vine that you grab gets you to where you want to go. That's not what matters. What matters is that you've taken the first step and now you're learning. Too many people look at where we want to go and say, oh, I can't get there. And they don't even try. Yeah. The growth doesn't come from the accomplishment. The growth comes from trying to do it. Yeah. So I know for me, I uh, law was not the plan two years ago, to be honest. I, uh, I, I went to rehab five years ago. Awesome. Um, sober for five years on May 15th. And congratulations. My, my plan was I was going to be a dietitian and work with fighters. Um, mm-hmm. And I applied to grad school. Like I, I had two universities that I had flunked out of already because I, I was just partying and, you know, I was that guy. And, and so my GPA from those schools kind of, they were just like, you can't make up this gap. It, it's not yeah. going to happen, you know? And that crushed me. Like that tore me down to where I was just like, yep. fuck. You know, like I worked so hard. I put like four years into this thing. This is something that like I told everybody I was going to do this. Watch me. I even started taking on my own friends that were already fighters as clients and yep. building this thing. And then it just all came down to a single mm-hmm. no. Yep. And the the one thing that I've always wanted to do was get into law. And it, it had nothing to do with the money and the suits. And I don't even like wearing suits. It's, Tell me about it. I wanted to find out there's a, a barrier of between the general population and an attorney to what you're allowed to do mm-hmm. as an attorney. You can protect people that do not have the ability to do that for themselves. Yeah. And coming from a bad place, it, that was just something I felt that it was a responsibility. Yeah. So I started telling my a couple friends, like very, yeah. like, couple, like, hey, I'm going to do this. 
And then I was leaving work one day and I was T-boned doing like 60, 65. Car rolled a flip a few times and hit a tree. I ended up in the hospital and I had to have spine surgery. I still have to have knee surgery. But so, and that was a year ago. And so it left me with this thought of, this is something I really want to do. Like I've always wanted Mm -hmm. to, but it's like trying to tell a homeless person, just go pick up a a million dollars, you know, like there's so many steps. So I just start picking away and going at them. And in doing that, I realized that I've faced anxiety of like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to have a place to sleep tonight. I don't know if I'm going to be able to have something to eat, not just now, but for tomorrow are people after me, you know, like all of these things. And it's made the anxiety of this building process a little bit easier because I've gone through so much more. So my question to you is, do you feel like you've been able to use that, that anxiety as a younger kid that you've had and overcoming those issues to be able to to deal with the problems of of actually starting that process and getting into law school because even though you're a paralegal at this point you cannot just say i'm gonna be an attorney and sign a piece of paper you have no. at least three to four years yep. before you get your first interview to be stuffed in a corner office to told you are gonna read papers for a couple of years and deal with it you know um, yeah. so yeah, yeah. Did, do you feel like that helped you at all? Um, I do, I do. Um, yeah, I do. Because from that anxiety came the, you can't hurt me. Mm-hmm. Right. So yes, I had anxiety. Um, first year going to law school was hard. I was driving two hours a day. Um, I lived in a small town, so I wasn't near the university. I would come home. I've got my kids. I've got the dogs. Oh, and did I mention that my ex-husband had back surgery a month before I started law school? So guess what he's doing? Uh, (laughs) Painkillers. Yes. And a lot. Yes. Yeah. So first year was the worst. Like, I think I was just on this, like, with the blinders on again and I'm just I'm just gonna go I'm just gonna go it's gonna be it's gonna be okay I just kept telling myself I've worked and I've waited my entire life to get here second year was better I scheduled my courses so I could work then I'd be at school I had classes in the morning I had classes at night and I worked at the school and I'd go to school like Monday Wednesday Friday and I was home with my kids and trying to work uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays as a paralegal still and then similar your crash, I had one. Only my crash um, was my blast from the past. It wasn't a car accident. It was a decision that I'd made when I was a paralegal to witness some documents, legal documents, mm-hmm. that were signed by a very close family friend, my ex-husband's family. And so I did it. I followed all the rules. That's probably... Not the way I could have done it better. Let's put it that way. But I followed all the rules, which was okay. verify the signature. Ask, um, say to the person, is this your signature? Yes. Are the contents true? Yes. Okay. Now I can be a paralegal and witness your signature. Thing is, I didn't see him sign it. But the law says you don't have to see him. You just have to satisfy yourself. 
And because I knew this person personally for a number of years, I trusted him. Well, that was stupid. That was a mistake. And he died. And then his ex-wife caused a big stink. And in my third year, I was just, I was in the summer of my second or second year, beginning of third year. And I get a call from our regulating body. And I had already written to them. I made an application so I didn't have to do what's called articling. So here in Canada, you do law school, then you article so like a co-op, practice being a lawyer for a year, and then you get called to the bar. So the law society said, you don't have to have your practice here. You know so much from being in law since you were, you know, in your early 20s. We're just going to pass that by. You go, you great, start making the money. And I had to go down to the law society. There was an investigator. We had to meet. We had to go over everything, all the stuff. And um, now, like, there's this huge police investigation going on. A few months later, I get another call from the law society and they, the investigator, and he said, um, I have really bad news. One, the police have called me and they're about to come and arrest you and charge you with six counts of major fraud. Oh, shit. I'm like, what's worse? We're not going to let you be a lawyer. Everything that I had worked for from the age of 15 Mm -hmm. to 40 by now was gone. Everything came crashing down around me. I got arrested. I had to go turn myself in. I had, it was horrible. Um, the police that was investigating this was very jaded and very biased by the dead guy's ex-wife. He gave interviews to the local newspaper. And when you live in a small town, boy, oh boy, does a very private matter become a public matter yeah. really fast, really fast. Yeah. 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 So talk about, you know, when you said, you know, like where your mind went, right? Same thing for me. As soon as that happened, all of the, the narrative, right? You're worthless. You're stupid. They don't want you. You're a loser. You're an idiot. You're just a teenage runaway. Who were you to think? This is what I'm telling myself, yeah. right? Who are you to think that you could have pulled this off? Who are you fooling? Yeah, it's the narrative, I, man. It's the stories that we tell ourselves. And yeah, and those stories are reality at times. And they you, are. You have to find a way to get out of that. I, when I uh, got the denial letter from grad school, yeah, uh, I I didn't think that was an option. Like I had gotten to the point to where I could teach my professors about nutrition, um, and. It, it just, yeah, it didn't seem like an option to me. And the reasoning was because of what I had done before. So I took it personally as they don't want me because it's yeah. me. It's not because of yeah. what's on paper. It's because of who I am as a person. Mm-hmm. And that, that sucked, you know, like it does. not it really does. having the tools in place to figure out how to actually handle this. And that, that tore me down. 
Um, and so going into into law now and actually growing the balls to do this, I still have that fear of, you know, something that's happened years before. Um, I do not have the a perfect record. I don't have any felonies, um, but I also am not allowed to come visit your country unless I have paperwork because I've gotten a DUI when I was like 21. Oh, um, you know, that was, and I'm 38 years old now. So a decision I made 17 years ago yeah. affects me for the rest of my life. And so yeah. I, I have this constant anxiety and fear of like, am I getting, am I going somewhere and then I'm going to get there and, and get it shut. So I can only imagine what that's like to find out, you know, you're going to jail and you're not going to be an attorney. You know, how do you, how do you rebound from that? That's not just like a, a normal slap on the wrist. No. That's you. You almost make that your identity at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and now it's gone. So yeah. what do you do from there? It was, you know, to say it was hard is an understatement. Mm-hmm. I had, um, I had two boys who had eyes on me and who watched mm-hmm. me get through everything right and i had them if i didn't have them things might have been different i had a good support network i um the lawyer i was working for at the time um introduced me to someone who um appealed the decision by the law society and i won i was successful but that time leading up to that, I was usually good from like nine till noon. I could work about half a day and then something would happen. The anxiety would set in and my, I was fight or flight. And at that point I was flight. And mm-hmm. so I would just leave my office and I would walk and I would go and I would walk and I'd walk. And it, it was, to be honest with you, I don't know. I was 90 pounds. I couldn't eat. Um, I would sit. My oldest son had moved out. He's going to university. You know, I would drop them off at the train station. I'd just sit there and look and think, you know, where can I just go? Can mm-hmm. I just get on a train and go? I can't. I have kids. I can't. I have responsibilities. Yeah. I can't. I can't. I didn't do anything wrong. That's the point. I did not do anything wrong. And I wasn't going to let this go. So, um, and yeah, and there were days I was depressed. I was suicidal. Um you know, you see the transport truck coming and you think, man, if I just a little get to the yep. left, this is all over. Yeah. But with my luck, it wouldn't be. With my luck, I'd still be alive. <laughs> so not doing that. Not doing that. No. <laughs> yeah. um, but I had, I did have good, I had a good support behind me. And I think that was the one thing that got me through it was I had just the lawyer I was working with was such a good friend and he was such a good support for me. And That's he understood crazy. and he lived it with me every single day. The times I'd go into his office and cry, um, we'd laugh. Um, like it was just, I had to, I could only let people in to my circle who I knew supported me without a doubt. And that was basically two people that grew into three. Yeah. So you said two things and I need to write them down because my memory is horrible. Um, First off, I wanted to thank you for uh, for even saying that you felt suicidal. I feel like so many people have these intrusive thoughts 
and they feel like, oh, that that was stupid, you know. But like, but it happens. It happens. Those thoughts happens, and and even when you're in a good spot, you know, like you could be on a tall building, and just be like, I wonder what would if, you know. So if you could extrapolate that to the worst day of your life, and then all you can really see is what would happen if, and the only answer you can get is it's over. And at that point, that's when people don't want to talk about things, you know, like yeah. you, you shut down and you start to be afraid of yourself. Yep. You're afraid of, you're afraid of everything else. And, and it's hard to admit that people have had those times in their life. It's not to say that you were suicidal, but it, I had a moment. It, yeah. It just, it goes to show where people can go in life and, and do you do you talk about that moment at all? Because like, yeah, not much, not yeah, much. And, and yeah, and I'm not going to dig into that because okay. I, I I understand. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I definitely yeah. understand. Um, and then the second thing was, is uh, this kind of can mix in that mold thing from uh from the start of this is to where I feel like you're kind of told what to do. You're never shown what to do um, growing no. up in certain situations. And so I feel like for your kids to see you constantly grinding, you can now tell them, go do this. Mm-hmm. And they know that from your experience, that's what you should do. And they know yeah. it works because they've watched you do it. Exactly. So that is an amazing thing that you've yeah. done. If you've never gotten accolades for that, I want to hand you Thank your you. flowers right now because that is an amazing way. I feel like more people should parent their kids by doing and pushing yeah. themselves to achieve things instead of telling their kids, you can do anything. Yeah. And then they go clock into a factory, come home, drink beer, watch TV, and go to bed. Exactly. And, and don't try. So for you yeah. to try is amazing. Yeah. Um, so let's and, kind of. Oh, yeah, go ahead. And just to sort of follow on that, you know, and that's where it comes. It's not about the outcome per se, right? It's not about the fact that I got here. It's the fact that this is all I've learned along the journey. And look what the people who are the most important to me in my life have learned as well. Mm -hmm. Right. That's where, that's where it really lives. Yeah. Yeah. So, so at this point you've, you've won this case, which I'm sure was hell as as anybody, their career. Once you start building something, it's not like losing your job at the grocery store. If, If you're told you can't be a lawyer, everything you've done up to that point means nothing. There there is no backup. And so you win this case that's got to be huge for you. Now, what's your next steps? Well, the next step is um, the law society says, we agree. You have good character. You get to be a lawyer. And um, that was awesome. I got called to the bar. I now I have a law license and I was probably the first, definitely probably the first woman to be called to the bar with significant criminal charges outstanding. So those charges hadn't been resolved. They were still there. <laughs> That's awesome. I know. <laughs> Just gangster. Still like, like Rosa Parks on the bus, right? I'm like, I'm doing it. And, yeah. um, and then, oh, then it got good. Because then I sued the police. And really? it turned out I did. 
Good for you. I did. I sued the police. And um, it resolved in a way to my satisfaction. Obviously, there's confidentiality agreements. So I can't sure. say too much more than that. Um, yeah, but it resolved very well to my satisfaction. And last I heard that police officer um, is no longer. Mm-hmm. And I remember um, when I met with my lawyer, his name was, unfortunately, he passed away this year, Clayton Ruby. He was a very famous Canadian lawyer for um, human rights and criminal. And I remember we walked into the courtroom to have the charges officially withdrawn. He didn't want it just done that, you know, just some done on paper. And right. we, we walked in and the judge was there and he was doing his thing. And he's like, oh, Mr. Ruby. Please, please, please come in. And he tells the lawyers who are already standing and making this man to sit down. And says, Mr. Ruby, with the greatest apology to your client for what the court system has put her through, all charges have been withdrawn. I'm moving to Canada. <laughs> and that was it. And I turned around and I walked out. That's amazing. Yep. And yeah. that was it. And, you know, as awesome as that is, I have spent the past 16 years, um, for the longest time I still had nightmares. I would get a letter from the law school. I'm sorry, we made a mistake. You didn't finish all your courses. Mm-hmm. We made a mistake. You should never have gotten your law license. So even though I had gotten past everything and I'm here, like I'm done, I still had that same mold, right? That narrative running in my head that I was nothing more than a teenage runaway and a criminal. Yeah. I feel like sometimes those identities never leave us because that's that identity is the armor that protected us, that that kept us going to get where we are. Mm -hmm. It is. It's very hard to drop that at times. It really, really is. And getting back to when COVID happened, like I was still going, right? Like I'm still, I don't trust myself to let anybody in. I don't trust anybody outside of me to let anybody in and I'm just going to keep pushing through. And remember now I'm this hyper resilient female lawyer in a very male world. And now I'm in a very male firm and Mm. getting to partner, which is where I am now. Oh yeah. That wasn't easy either. I have a little pillow on my couch over there. It says, nevertheless, she persisted. And, um, Now I'm a partner. I'm the senior female partner at my firm. And I've started to really get tired. Like I noticed after I started staying home when COVID hit, I was exhausted. And I started thinking, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be the tough girl. I don't want, I I just don't want to carry this, this protective armor. It felt like it was trapping me. So I started doing some research and I've kind of learned how to fix things, fix that narrative. So that's the way the brain, this is my basic brain knowledge, right? Brain's number one job is to keep you alive. Mm -hmm. That's it. Since the dawn of time, since we were cave people, the brain's function was for us to survive. And that's never changed. It keeps us alive, keeps our systems, keeps our organs, everything. It It is busy up there. Your brain doesn't have the time to deal with all of these external and interpret all of these external events that goes on around us. Your brain is negatively biased. 
And that also comes from our survival years. Watch out, you're going to get eaten. I need to find food to survive. All of the things as cave people, I need my tribe. I need my community. I need to belong. I don't, oh my gosh, this is what's going to happen to me. So you've got a brain that keeps you alive. You've got a brain that's negatively biased. And there's a quote um, from um, Viktor Frankl. And what he said, I love him. And what he says is that between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space is where your power to choose your response lies because how the brain works i'll give you an example just a little while ago we had this big thing here at the office that they were going to move me from my office i'm in now and they're going to put me up somewhere else i don't want to change offices I like my digs the way they are but they're going to move me up to four and i was furious like literally i wanted to rip someone's throat out with my bare hands yeah. what is going on here and I didn't feel good about, like, I, I just felt awful. I had so much anger and so much rage. I'm like, where is this coming from? And so I asked myself this question, wait a minute, why do I care? Well, I care because this means they don't want me. This means that they must think I'm stupid. This means that I must be worthless. This means I must be insignificant. This means I must be small. And all of that narrative that I had when I was a teenage runaway came back and dictated how I felt about how my office was going to be moved. And that's because the brain is busy and it's negative. And so as soon as it was hit, so the stimulus, the event, right, says to my brain, Stacy, your office is moving. And my brain automatically reaches way back into its filing cabinet and pulls out something that it thinks is similar to what's happening now. And it throws it on the table. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, hold on a minute. Wait a minute. This isn't good for me. How do I fix this? I don't like how this feels. I don't like how I feel. Why am I letting someone else's decision, why am I telling myself that it's a shitty story about me? And that's what Victor Frankl is saying. So if you can figure out how to mind that gap between the stimulus and your response, and reframe that narrative, that negative habit loop that you have that is built on everybody else's values and beliefs and turn it into a positive belief that only serves me. That's when you grow, that's when you have fulfillment. And because of the way the brain works, we have this thing called the reticular activation system, right? So if you want to buy a a, a new red car, all of a sudden you see red cars everywhere. Like, yeah. holy God, why, why is everybody driving a red car? Why? Because your brain is thinking about a red car. Now my brain is thinking about, it's watching how I react to situations. And that time that I spend between the stimulus and the response and then having to backpedal is getting shorter. And I'm learning how to replace those negative uh, habit loops that my brain has developed and I'm learning how to replace them with positive ones. So next time I come into a situation where somebody does something that I now interpret negatively, that hurts me, physically hurts me, right? The stress, the anxiety, the anger, 
I don't want to eat. I'm right. I'm raging. That won't happen anymore. Because now when my brain reaches back, it doesn't have to go back 20 years. My brain's only going to go back a couple years or a couple days. And it's going to say, no, it's okay. It has nothing to do with how they feel about me. Sure. That's them. How yeah. do I see this? You know, I see this as a good move because they're going to renovate. They're going to knock down two walls. They're going to repaint it, get me new carpet. And all of my staff, instead of us now being on three floors, we're all going to be on the same floor. Do I care whether or not they didn't, you know, think about me initially when they thought about the move? Why do I care? I don't yeah. care. You have yeah. to, you just, if you're open to accepting those sort of three basic principles, you learn how to rewrite the story that you tell yourself to a way that suits you. It doesn't mean that you're lying. It doesn't mean that you're, you know, walking around with these rose-colored glasses on. It just means that you've chosen to look at what's happened to you and interpret it in a way, tell yourself the story that only serves you. Yeah. I, uh... And that dictates how you go out into the world. And that's where you come to fulfillment, growth and fulfillment. 100%. Yeah. I, uh, I think it's ironic. And uh, just for, for my listeners that don't know Victor Frankl, she's talking about a guy who wrote a book based off of his experience in a concentration yeah. camp in Nazi Germany. So if you can be a guy who's walking around not knowing if he's going to live through the night, yeah. Um, I believe he even was one of the workers mm-hmm. uh, like forced into doing things that he did not want to do, living yeah. in horrendous conditions. And he's yeah. still able to find out that you can change your mindset yeah. and alter your reality. I mean, like, it, it, there's yeah. something definitely to be said there for any situation that we're in compared to what yeah. he came up with this theory. Yeah. So, because, so yeah, uh, you know, People talk about mindset and they think it's motivation, but it's not like the amount of power that you can have over how you feel in your life is under your control. It really is. It's not easy. Don't get me wrong. It's not easy. And it's still a journey that I am really working hard to get through. Um, but part of what helps me get through it is stuff is talking, talking like this, yeah. talking and sharing with people because to look around, if you look around at all the people that, you know, it's sad to think that, you know, we all go through our lives. Mm-hmm. We may be happy with what we're doing and we may have achieved and we may be successful, but are you fulfilled? Are yeah. you really living what you were meant to live? Yep. I've also I, learned that, uh, the three, so in my opinion, and, and I know your time is very valuable, so I'll get you out of here pretty soon. I've no got problem. Questions. Um, I'm a lawyer. I like to talk. The, I, I've learned that um, in order to have that support system, you want somebody to ask you three questions, and in the same time, you need to be able to ask those three questions. And those three questions that I've learned are, are you okay? Mm-hmm. How are you really doing? And can I do anything for you? And those three simple questions, I feel like, open up a conversation that you have no idea where it's going to go, but it lets you know who that person really is. 
and mm-hmm. you have to go through some shit, like yeah. some real shit to get to that point, to even realize the impact that those three questions have. Those are and, huge questions. Yeah, they, they really are. are. And they yeah. fit on one line of a piece of paper, but it, it's, it can be a life-changing conversation. It and can so be. I wanted, I wanted to uh, just, just to note that, but then also kind of wrap this up a little bit so you can get out to, to saving the world again. <laughs> um, but I'm curious – very curious as to where a homeless 15 year old you know and i know without even like talking the the ages between 15 and 20 you don't talk about everything let's just assume you weren't the perfect person and uh fill in the blanks (laughs) things could have gone wrong almost every day every one of those days i'm sure something could have Mm -hmm. changed and we no longer have this conversation so that person that says they're going to be a lawyer and you go through all the bullshit and you jump through all the red tape and you're fighting all these internal demons and you make it and now you're a lawyer and what are you doing with that like what type of lawyer are you what law do you practice now and do you feel fulfilled fulfilled in uh yeah in doing this type of law um i am a personal injury lawyer which I thought was kind of coincidental when we started talking because we're both on the same path. You have had your car accident and I represent people who have been seriously injured and I fight for their recovery first and foremost by um, linking them up with the best healthcare team I can find for them. And then I fight the insurance company to get the money. Um, Am I fulfilled? Yes and no. Yes and no. Because there's something awesome that comes from knowing I made a difference in someone's life. And that's the only reason why I got into personal injury law, because it's the only area of law that I saw where I could actually make a difference. Um, but it's only money. Mm-hmm. And money doesn't buy health. And money doesn't buy happiness. Yeah. So the hard part, what I try to do um, is I try to, work with my clients to keep them out of the disability mindset that grabs them. And I really work hard to be very client focused and very client centered. I don't necessarily get into my story with them. I don't think it's really relevant, but um, I do the best I can to, to touch their lives and make them better. So in a way you're kind of taking the Tony Robbins approach in, in trying to just instill some experience and, and get them out of that mindset because yeah. my, uh, my, my mother is, is in that mindset of uh, she's always had some money coming in that was never worked for some medical. There's just always, and especially in this yeah. country, this oh, country, yeah. you can get away with fucking anything. Like, yeah, I'll just give you money just enough to survive, <laughs> like mm-hmm. barely enough to survive. But that's that was what I saw growing up, and so yeah. it was, it's, that mindset is a real, very real mindset, and it's very hard mm-hmm. to get out of. Um, very much so. And while money doesn't fix everything, if you have the financial education of what to do with that money, it can start to get you to a better place. Yeah, uh, it, it can start to give you the tools that you need to fix the things that you don't talk about and and everything yep. like that. Um, yeah. So yeah. Um, one final question and then um, see if we can't kind of get your social media and everything to see if people want to reach out to you. But yeah. what's on 
what's next? Because so far, <laughs> you've talked about all these goals and accomplishments and like things you've had to overcome to get here. You're here. I, I it doesn't seem like you're the type of person to be like, all right, I did it, cool, nine to five. You know, like, do you have other things coming up that you, that you're working on, bigger aspirations? I mean, clearly, you're a partner at a at a large law firm. That is a giant accomplishment and accolade. It just doesn't seem like you you're the type of person that's okay with just with just that. Do you have anything else that you're kind of secretly working on or that you like a side yeah. project? Of course, you know that. Um, <laughs> how can it be just this? <laughs> right. There's no way. It's just um, but no, all sort of laughing aside. I remember. Um, and it was my granddaughter, actually. Yes, I have three of them, two grandsons, two granddaughters, and a grandson. Damn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, and it for, was no, just, just like I, I am cutting you off. Pause there for a second. You earlier, you talked about cassette tapes, right? Yeah. I had a Walkman. Like I'm 38. You are not that much older than me, so. You're a grandma. Congratulations. Damn. Thank you. Doing Thank a good you. job. <laughs> I'm doing a good job. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I was talking to my 11-year-old granddaughter. She was talking about being bullied in class. And I started to, you know, share some of my you know, very thoughts and wisdom. And I remembered that all of a sudden this thought came back in my mind. And I thought, I remembered this day when I, I made another promise to myself. That one day, you know, share my story. Because I don't want anybody else to have to go through what I've gone through. Mm-hmm. And when that dawned on me, I thought, you know what? I do have a story to share. And I don't have a story that I need to be embarrassed about. I have a story that I'm proud of. And I have a story that can, I hope, help so many people. Because I think the more that we share our stories, the more that we help people. And as a lawyer, as I see a lot of, we have more and more women coming into law and I want to help them. I want to be able to mentor them to be able to say, yeah, it's going to be hard. And yes, it's going to be tough and you need to be resilient, but you don't have to run the negative narrative because you're going to face it. You're going to face it. You're going to be belittled. You're going to be talked down to. You're going to be made to believe that you're not as good as the men. And you have to build your new set of beliefs. I'm the type of person who, that's the belief. I'm the type of person who knows that if I go in here and I do my best, then I'm good enough. Those are, right? So I want to take that and I want to help young women, middle-aged women, older women, but I really see, I see it really now intersecting with the people that I represent, the people that I work with, and the women who are coming behind me. So that's where I'm going. That's awesome. That's, yeah. that's amazing. I, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll kind of end with this, and then um, we can get your information out there. But yeah. I've noticed that people that have struggled to make the climb, that have earned it, you know, that, that haven't had things given to them. Um, they understand that grind 
and it's almost like real recognize real and when you see somebody in the hallway and like oh there's something there and then you're the type of person that actually extends the hand to help out like that's what's separating you from most colleagues or other people within the field um so i definitely want to give you your flowers for that because that's an amazing thing especially you had those people in your life and so to turn around after climbing the ladder and just extend a hand down that you know what that means so important you yeah so important you know what that means so for you to do that is, is is amazing, and I did not want to go with that not being said. So thank just, you. Even though I know I don't work with you personally, thank you for being another inspirational person that does do that. Because I feel like we live in a society now to where it's only okay to help somebody else out if there's a camera on it, and yeah. then you can post it for the clout, saying that this is what you gave this homeless guy a hundred dollars or whatever it is, yeah. and and you're doing the real help of of really trying to get people in the door that they can then turn around and actually help real people. Yeah. So what you're doing is amazing. Yeah. It's like the chain, just like you said, you, you nailed it. It's about reaching back and pulling up those who are coming behind me. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it's all about. Yeah. I know I've taken up a lot of your time. Oh gosh. uh, We went really long, didn't we? (laughs) It's I'm okay with it. I just know your schedule swamped it, but uh, I'm good today. I genuinely thank you. I'm very thank grateful you. for this conversation. It was a pleasure. I reach out again. Please. Um, where can everybody find you online? Um, um, so- right now, it's basically just Instagram. I've okay. got, um, it's at Stacy S-T-A-C-E-Y underscore L-Y-N-N-E-S. Okay. That's really about it for now. Um, you know, I've got, um, as a lawyer, you know, I've got that professional site, the website and the bio and stuff on there on our law sure. firm site. But um, just from the social perspective, that's the one I'm running with right now. Okay. Keeping it small. Yeah. Yeah. No, good. That's, I like that. It, it keeps it real. It, yeah. It's not small. It's real and honest. Um, and then, so one final question that I, I have to ask, and this is more of a personal one. Um, trying to figure out how to word this with, with a similar, so I guess my question is you having these issues growing up and coming from where you came from and experiencing the things that you experienced, do you live with a constant fear of the other foot dropping to this day? Or do you feel like you've been able to find a place to where you're comfortable and where you're at? And by, yeah, by foot dropping is like, you know, still worrying about the law school thing popping up or, you know, because I mean, like, it almost feels like being an attorney is such a a valuable thing. It becomes your identity, but it can Mm -hmm. also be taken away because it's nothing more than a piece of paper in a filing cabinet that no one knows where it is. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess I'm just kind of curious is, do you, do you still feel like the, uh, the other shoe is going to drop? And do you feel like the negative things that you went through hurt you in the process of becoming an attorney? Um, I feel that if there is another shoe to drop, I'm better equipped to handle it. I like that. 
I'm just better equipped to handle it. Who knows, right? Who knows what life is going to bring? There's no predictors, but I hope I'm better equipped to handle it. And um, the second question, no, you know, I think, I think what I've been through, I think it makes me a better attorney. That took a long time to get there because for a long time I was embarrassed, right? Didn't trust me. Didn't trust anybody. Didn't want to have, what are people going to think? Opo. Fear of other people's opinions. Yeah, I uh, thank you. Thank you for that. I, I needed to hear that because um, I don't know how it is in Canada, but in the U.S., to uh, to apply to law schools, you have to also submit a personal letter. Yeah. Um, with like letters of recommendation and all mm-hmm. this. It's huge. But in the personal letter, I planned on talking about not being the traditional student, being almost 40 years old at the time that I apply going through struggles and having the intangibles that you can't teach because i feel like i can walk into a room and be a very good judge of character not so much of who you are as a person but i'm very good at finding out if you have an ulterior motive and if what you're saying is who you are because that's that's so baked in when you live like that and so that was kind of a strength on in my head Mm -hmm was a strength but to hear you say that even if that's not true i'm just going to keep it and end it with that because i needed to hear that so so thank you thank you so much for coming on Um, this has been awesome anytime yeah i've really enjoyed this conversation and do not be surprised if i just randomly message you just to say what's up because i've I've please do so please please do and i want to know where you're going and if you need um any help i've got my personal statement that i wrote to get in, I'm happy to, I'm happy to share it with you, give you some ideas about what I said to really translate that the fight, right? Yeah. You're the fighter. You're the fighter for the underdog. You were the underdog once. Somebody's right? got to do it. Now you want to be the fighter for the underdog and you're best equipped to do that because you've walked that walk. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's the message that you need to get across in your law school application. And I will do that. And I will most likely take you up on your offer and, and read your paper. Yep. And happy to share it with you. Use some of it. So, yeah. So, yeah. No right. problem. Well, it has been amazing, Stacey. Thank you again oh, thank for you. coming on. And uh, yeah, enjoy the rest of your day. And you too. This can help somebody out. So, it's been great. That's my goal. All right. Keep in touch, my friend. Yep. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye. Bye.